0: Steve and Kevin analyze rules updates and the NYSE Open results on episode 44 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 44 of So Many Insane Plays, in which we'll be touching on a number of current vintage topics such as VSL, the new Mulligan Rule, and the NYSE Open results. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGcast, or the We have quite a few announcements this episode. The first up is the upcoming Eternal Weekend. I'm sure most of our audience is well aware, but if you're not, you can go to cardtitan.com and look at their page on Eternal Weekend. The big news that has most recently come up is the prizes for the two main events. Drum roll for legacy we get volcanic island.
1: You know that's that's quite an intriguing selection for as a prize. They have a dual land. This is the first time that they've selected a dual land, right? It's not the first time they've selected a land, but they have a dual land. What do you think of that, Kevin?
0: I think they've they have a little bit of historical evidence that cycles of cards are still popular enough for people to be excited. And there aren't too many more cycles than the dual lands that are so evocative of legacy and so fundamental.
1: So, the, the prizes they've given, the prize paintings they've given before for legacy have included Force of Will and Brainstorm and Wasteland. Mm-hmm. I can't recall the other ones, do you? Uh,
0: there was Gaia's Cradle last year.
1: Huh. So, there is certainly precedent for land. But Volcanic Island is, I think, a character of a different kind of order, in a sense, because it's not just a staple, it's sort of a background staple in many respects. You know, it's not like, you know, even a card like. Gaia's Cradle or Wasteland is more actively involved in the game in some way, whereas Volcanic Island, I don't know, it just it's, it strikes me as is unique mm-hmm. or at least different than than the historical precedent where you've selected a card that is usually not just a heavily played card, but usually you know some marquee format defining card.
0: It's less strategic than it is fundamental. Yeah, I would agree.
1: If you can draw some distinction that way, that's sort of what I'm getting at.
0: There's also one other uh, currency that Volcanic Island and Duelands in general trade on, and that is nostalgia and historical significance. Because this is a card, ironically, from Beta. (laughs) Not Alpha. (laughs) Not Alpha, right. (laughs) But it's still akin to the Alpha Duels, of course. And so it goes back as far as the vintage cards do.
1: For our listeners who aren't aware of what we're talking about, there were five cards that were originally supposed to be part of limited edition, in the first Magic: The Gathering set release that were accidentally omitted. One of which was Volcanic Island. That's why it's it's not in Alpha, but it is in the in the Beta set set run. Um, but but you know, Gaia's Cradle is not exactly a central Legacy staple. So isn't it odd that they would you know, you know, when you think about cards that are sort of sexy and splashy or highly salient or visible, I think of cards you know creatures. Maybe some Planeswalkers, certainly some of the big spells. Um, but of the lands, you don't really think of the dual lands or the fetch lands. But it's an interesting precedent, so I wonder what that means going forward. And I wonder what their sort of selection process was for this.
0: Yeah, it's interesting as comparison to Vintage, too, because Vintage has whole archetypes that are designed around their lands. We talk about Workshop decks and Bizarre decks. Yeah. And occasionally we talk about Wasteland decks, too, but that's mostly under the heading of Null Rod. And so there are some lands in Vintage that are just so definitive that to use the metric you just used, I'd far more rather have a alternate art Mishra's workshop on my wall than I would any other creature in that archetype. Even the biggest and best, like Lodestone Golem, I'd still rather have the workshop. Same thing for Bazaar. I'd much rather have a Bazaar of Baghdad on my wall than Dread Return or Cabal Therapy or Bridge from Below. So I think there's some precedent there that volcanic island is also working against
1: why volcanic island over say underground sea or tundra no is it clear that volcanic island is so much more played or important to legacy players than those other lands
0: i think they've chosen that one for that reason sure just because of the popularity of various archetypes such as sneak and show and delver i don't have the statistics right in front of me but i would hazard that volcanic island is the most played dual land today Interesting. Yeah. So you're right. It's a it's a new it's a new precedent, and my instincts tell me that we won't get all ten duels necessarily, because there's definitely <laughs> ten, a hierarchy.
1: Was, <laughs> yeah, ten. I was thinking of four, but I had... <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's funny <laughs> because uh, there's more variety of duel lands played in Legacy than there is in Vintage. Granted, but still, Badlands is not is not nearly as popular as the blue duels and uh, a couple of the white ones as well.
1: Yeah, plateau is I think the by far least played in any format.
0: So we'll see. We'll see what they do. There's they've got a couple of years to figure it out because if they start down this road, then they don't have to really make many decisions for a couple of years, right?
1: Right. <laughs> and it's it, but it makes you also wonder: is this a cycle that they're going to begin going through? In many ways, I've argued that the dual lands are to Legacy what the Moxin are to Vintage. They are just fundamental building blocks. Um, but but there is a let me think about this. There is a um, qualitative difference between Moxon and Dual land. Moxon have a—they uh, have an allure about, uh, an attraction, a, a flavor to them that that dual lands seem, you know, tame and, and banal in comparison. <laughs> um, you know, Moxen are part of the, the iconic Power Nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of Moxon, the second, the second uh, prize of the weekend, the second painting of the weekend is um, is Mox Emerald. Which,
0: Absolutely, continuing which is, that cycle.
1: In a sense, actually, restarting a cycle because of the moxen that have been uh, released as paintings, all five of them were already uh, already out there, right? I mean, so uh,
0: last year's Pearl,
1: last year's Pearl was the first duplicate. That's yeah. right. Yep, yep. So, so they are, uh, you know, down that path of um, repeating the Moxon all the way through it. It appears. So that's um, that's exciting.
0: Interesting that they're starting with what is pretty clearly the least popular Moxon in vintage, so Pearl it, and <laughs> right? And if it hadn't been for the printing of Monastery Mentor, I mean, Pearl would have been definitely in last place. Pearl has definitely gained some popularity lately, (laughs) but still probably in last place overall. I guess they're just trying to drum up the future interest.
1: Right. Remind me, um, so in the past, they started in 2003 with the first Vintage Championship. They started with, with Black Lotus. And the, the cycle was, let's just go through it with Black Lotus in 2003, Time Twister in 2004, Ancestral Recall in 2005, is that right? That's when Roland Chang won. Then in 2006, it was a Mox. I think it was Mox Pearl. And then they did the Jet, which I won, the Ruby, which Paul won. The 2010 was, I want to say, they well, obviously they did Time Walk. An emerald and then did they restart the cycle at that point? Two thousand twelve? They did with Time Twister. And then
0: That's right. In two thousand twelve it was a reset with Time Twister. That's what Mark Linegar won. And then they went back to Ancestral and then Mark Taco's Mox Pearl was the first repeat mocks. If you skip over Black Lotus that Carl won, the next three years have been repeated in order starting in 2012. Time Twister, Ancestral Recall Mox Pearl were the same in 456 as they were in 12, 13, 14. This year's Emerald is actually a diversion from that because Jet followed Pearl in 2007. So at any rate, it certainly seems like we're back into uh, a 5-mox cycle.
1: But if they they continue the cycle, in other words, the cycle of power 9 all the way through, that means... The remaining six left will be the other three Moxon and, and the other two pieces of Power of, of power Blue. Right. And, uh, and Black Lotus. Right? But we'll see. We'll see,
0: yeah. Right. It certainly seems like they're setting themselves up to work toward Black Lotus now.
1: Right. That's kind of what I'm driving at. It, 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 that the A few years from is, now. Yeah, could be Black Lotus, which yeah. would put us in, what, 2020 or 2021? <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll a they're playing the
0: long game. Which I know you and I are fine with.
1: That's fine. That's really exciting, and I'm glad to. See, I'm actually glad to see that they're going to continue with the Power Nine rather than divert themselves with. You know, it would be interesting to see them do another vicious workshop or a bizarre Baghdad or something else or a mana drain. But, but I think most players would rather just win a mocks. You know, don't you think? Right. Agreed. The time walk painting by Chris Ron is really spectacular.
0: Oh, isn't it? It's so good. That's why they used it for the Magic Online.
1: And I, I just love the multidimensionality of it. Yeah. You know, you've got the the. the it's almost like. It, It's operating on three different planes. You've got like the foreground where this guy is on this incredible wheel, and then you've with these amazing petroglyphs, and then you've got this bright ball of fire in the right-hand corner below it, which is further in the distance, and then you've got like this moon-like object with these asteroids in the middle ground. Right. It's very unusual.
0: And the one thing that I find interesting about it is the movement of the stars implies simple planetary rotation, right? Right. As ours do. But the arc of the sun going in a different arc... Yeah. It, I don't even know what that's meant to mean. Is it are, are they are they in some kind of multi sun star system? It just really asks a lot of questions. I think. Yeah. Or is it meant to just talk about the juxtaposition of time, like these two things are happening at different times? I, I think
1: that's exactly what that means. Yeah. yeah. He's and he's like on this wheel of time. Right. It's also interesting that he's got a weapon drawn. Like what what is it? What is he drawing the weapon for? Like why does he have a sword out? Right. Like what does that mean? Like. Is he def- is he in some sort of offensive mode? Is mm-hmm. he gearing up for an attack, or is he just having it there for I don't know show?
0: Also, it's, it occurs to me as I lean in that that's probably a woman.
1: Yeah, that is just a really fascinating piece. And I love I love the different you know dimensionality of. It. Yeah, really cool,
2: really cool
0: opinion. And related to Eternal Weekend, we will do a preview show for our next episode, talking about the state of the metagame and the format going into it, possible impacts from Magic Origins, etc. Looking forward to that one a lot. But on to other. And
1: we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that as part of the Eternal Weekend, there will also be a unofficial event hosted by Eternal Central. Um, last year, they had the first Eternal Central Old School Magic Tournament. Last year, Eternal Central hosted a unofficial Eternal Weekend side event, which was the Eternal Central Old School Magic Tournament, and that will be held on Friday. I don't know when or where, but we'll post that information as soon as we get it. Or you can continue to check eternalcentral.com for updates. But I will definitely be playing in that event.
0: It should be pretty well attended. Old School is picking up in popularity and players every day.
1: That's, that's right. And um, in relation to that, we're going to have an old school uh, magic tournament at Euda, Eudaimonia in Berkeley at the end of July. Uh, you can find that announcement in the non-vintage uh, section of the Mana Drain, and I'll certainly post a link to it here. But uh, Eternal Central uses its own banned and restricted list, which is different than the 93-94 group in Europe. So be sure to check out Eternal Central's Old School Magic page to look at their banned and restricted list um, to prepare for this event. But one of the big differences is they do not restrict strip mine. So uh, just be aware of that, um, and it should be great fun.
0: And you've written some articles about Old School coming out, right?
1: That's right, actually. Um, I have a a plan with uh, VintageMagic.com, which is yet another website uh, for 10 Old School Magic uh, articles. I'm really excited about this, Kevin. Uh, (laughs) Over a year ago, I made a deal with VintageMagic.com to develop a set of 10 articles for their website on Old School Magic. And the first one I I wrote in April of last year. And I think it's finally going to be published in July of this year, uh, this month. Um, and there should be a, another article coming out every three weeks or every other every uh, every month. So uh, we'll post the link to the first uh, introductory article. If it's live, if not, I'll make sure to tweet it cool. from both both uh, our Twitter account, so many Plays, as well as my own.
0: Awesome. Do you have other article updates going up?
1: Uh, no, just uh, be on the lookout for the Old School Magic series. And uh, a bunch of people are going to be writing for that site, including Brian DeMars and others.
0: It should be great. It really brought in some good writers and some vintage community members to contribute. It's not an article, but I think you've got VSL Season 3 about to kick off, yes?
1: That's right, yeah. In fact, that starts... For the time of our podcasting, it starts tomorrow night. Uh, it's going to be an abbreviated season, a double elimination playoff uh, season where we only have eight players for three weeks, and the top three players are going to be qualified for the, I believe it's called the Super Super League or something like that. <laughs> Do you know what it's called? No, I, I,
0: I couldn't tell you, but that's about it.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and that's going to have uh, feeders from all the various Super League, including the uh, Standard Super League and the Vintage Super League, and I think... think it's public that the modern super league um there will be a full vintage super league season four in the future i hope i'm not spoiling anything uh but that probably won't be until probably early next year
0: seems that vintage super league was a bit of a victim of its own success in terms of the blank super league format (laughs) (laughs) because the standard and then moderns are so popular that now there's not quite enough time in the year for vintage
1: yeah and you know uh I think the timing is going to be good because the Vintage Super League will wrap up just a couple weeks before the Vintage Championship, and the Vintage Championship is unusually early this year. Mm-hmm. So that'll give us a nice break, and people will be hankering for some vintage by the beginning of next year or whenever the next uh, season kicks off.
0: You know, I hadn't considered that interaction with the timing on Eternal Weekend, but that is pretty great. That means that you guys will collectively, well, we'll see how many of you do, but you might get the the new cards for Magic Origins or changes in the format otherwise to, to exercise, and then we'll see how that impacts Eternal Weekend.
1: You know, I, I have to say that when we first started doing this, what, now, maybe seven, eight, nine months ago, I couldn't have imagined what a difference I think the Vintage Super League has been on, on the Vintage community, but I really think that it's... Um, driving a lot of attendance at some of these local and, and larger events. I think it's generated in other words, I think it generated a lot of interest and enthusiasm for the format, as well as, you know, a general basic increase in understanding of the format. Yes. While yes. dispelling a lot of misconceptions.
0: Yes. And I think that's something vintage really kind of needed is some high profile attention on how it has shaken off some of its some of its past uh, stereotypes. I think we're going to see a lot of that, too, as we talk about the NYSE Open results. But before we get to that, there's other pretty impactful announcements that came from Wizards of the Coast just this last week. There are three changes to organized play related to rules and or coverage that are going to be tested out at Pro Tour Origins. And one would assume put into regular circulation at some point thereafter, unless they run into a major snag. The biggest one of which is the change to the mulligan rule. We're going to talk about that in depth, but let me quickly mention the other two. The second is judges may now use video coverage to make rulings, which obviously is far more impactful at top-level play and only for a small slice of players, and it may make its way into the realms of vintage at something like Eternal Weekend, maybe, but not very impactful for the vintage community. And similarly, they are enforcing now card layout, that is the layout of permanence on the battlefield, for video coverage matches. They've got a list of requirements. Creatures must be in front of lands. Nothing can be behind lands. The library can be on either side of the play area, left or right. Graveyard must be adjacent to the library. The (laughs) exile zone must be near the library slash graveyard. It must be distinct from the graveyard. This one's interesting. If a card is exiled by a permanent in play, the exiled card must be placed in proximity to the exiling permanent such that it is obvious that the two are associated.
1: That has a lot of influence.
0: <laughs> yes, it. it does. But hold on, let me get to the last one. All yeah. untapped cards in play must face the controller of that card. Some interesting rules that they've chosen to enforce here, right? Creatures in front of lands and vice versa has always been a, a mocking debate in the community as a whole for, for more than a year now. Speaking holistically, the lands in front of creatures thing is probably the biggest one in terms of things that are on people's minds. Library and graveyard next to each other, no one really talks about that. Creatures in front of lands, not lands in front of. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. but, but the the orientation of library, graveyard, exile, no one really talks about that. Most players do it quite similarly. The uh, the other one that got the most, I think, attention was the all untapped cards in play must face their controller. And that is primarily due to the recent success by Adrian Sullivan, who is known for facing his cards toward his opponent. <laughs> and he you know, got he got called out for that, but he is on record as saying it's not a big deal,
1: you know, what? I haven't really put a tremendous amount of thought in this, but I think I think as Magic transitions from being you know something that's just ex- experienced more casually to more of a spectator sport, especially at the highest levels, I think that it makes a lot of sense that Wizards devotes some attention and, and, and energy into figuring out the best presentation format for the game. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And st- standardization is certainly part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I love about um, Magic Online that is harder to do but not impossible uh, in terms of video coverage, is that you can just put your cursor over the card and it pops it out so that people can read the card. Um, I found it very difficult sometimes when I'm watching formats I'm unfamiliar with to actually tell what's going on because i do not not familiar with the cards. Um, but I Definitely. do think these, these kinds of rules can help make that easier.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree completely. There's, there is very little to object to here, I think, that's substantive. Um, there are some players who have... Perhaps mockingly strong opinions about one thing or the other here, right. but in the end, yes, this is only a good thing. And-
1: but, but but I but you know, it's one thing to set out uh, general rules or guidelines. It's another thing to enforce them. I would say, overly rigidly, you know, you could imagine cases in which exceptions could and or should be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I, I hope that organized play and, you know, whoever, in, the judges that enforce these in tournaments will, will make note of that. For example, um, is it really a problem if someone puts a mox in with their lands? Do You know, how will that... That is to say, you know, moxen are often treated once they're in play as a mana source, just like any other lands. I have no objection with my, and I don't think it's a big deal, if my opponents have the moxen on the same level, so to speak, as their lands. Do you? Mm-hmm.
0: No, absolutely not.
1: But this rule would seem to require that they put their moxen a, a, a higher up on the plane of view than the land.
0: Yes, and for non-vintage formats or non-modern formats, formats without played moxen, the similar thing would happen with mana creatures. Elves, Birds of Paradise, Deathrite Shaman, that kind of thing. It's occasionally happens that the player will group a card that produces mana down with their lands. And many astute observers immediately pointed out what are you supposed to do with cards that have multiple types, like Dryad Arbor. Exactly. Dryad Arbor has been known to cause confusion on camera for that very reason. Yeah, so it's, it'd be interesting to see if this policy actually specifies a hierarchy for yeah. permanents that are more than one type.
1: Exactly. So what happens if you activate a Mishra's factory? Does it have to be moved ahead of the other stuff? Uh-huh. And, if so, and if so, when it's you know, according to the rule, it just says nothing can be behind land. So, you know, that doesn't mean that something can't be on the same level as land.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: But but what if you have a land creature? That's a good a good question.
0: So we'll um, see. It'll be very interesting to see how this is enforced. As you've quickly alluded to, the enforcement is dramatically different than the statement of policy. And right. magic the average game of magic does not feature a great deal of board complexity. There's lands, there's creatures, maybe an artifact or an enchantment here or there. It's not the average game's not that hard to follow, even in eternal formats. But magic yeah. is known for its ability to become complex.
1: That's exactly right.
0: And it's and it's interesting because it's in those complex scenarios that this kind of hierarchy would be most useful.
1: And yet also be most tricky to to operationalize and enforce. <laughs> right. I mean, for example, one of the rules here is the gra- graveyard must be adjacent to the library. But what happens if you're playing dredge right. and your library is larger than anything else? Your graveyard, you so it says Your graveyard, I'm sorry. Your graveyard's larger than anything else. It says that um, nothing can be behind lands. But a lot of times people just make a horizontal graveyard because there's so many triggers happening simultaneously out of the graveyard. I mean, you can imagine a graveyard that has three or more bridge from below. Mm-hmm. Three, you know, four, five, six Icarids and or uh, Blood Gas to trigger, um, you know, you could have um, Narcomoebas, I guess Narcomoebas wouldn't be triggering from the graveyard, but you could certainly have, um, uh, you know, a number of cards being played out of the graveyard that would require a, a larger view. So, you know, all it says here is the graveyard must be adjacent to the library, but but can it not be behind lands, right?
0: (laughs) I'm with you. That's a very interesting point. And if any of our audience have not played much tournament vintage, or perhaps you simply haven't seen an experienced dredge player use this technique, but many seasoned dredge players will extend their graveyard out going from left to right, possibly in multiple rows in front of them. Yes. To, to maximize visibility because they're otherwise their permanents take up frequently very little of the board. That's right. right? One or two lands and then a stack of zombies, and that's frequently it. That's right. And so for the sake of all players' clarity, they do these kind of things, and I think most people acknowledge that it's a net benefit, but it would seem to violate this new rule.
1: By its strict terms, that's correct. Yeah. It says creatures must be in front of lands, and nothing can be behind land. But, cre- but graveyard stacks are often behind yeah. land. At least I, when playing, when playing dredge, and the only lands that dredge often has will be a bazaar right <laughs> so you know it's, it's a t- the, the in other words lands take up you know it's not to say that the dredge doesn't have a lot of land sometimes dredge runs petrified field and wasteland or whatever a bunch of things you know there's a, like five six seven different lands you can sometimes find in dredge from Dakmore salvage to uh you know a riftstone portal right The point is that the lands that are in play are often very few. And the, um, the graveyard is often enormous. So the idea, you, this is a, like a one-size-fits-all rule where one size really doesn't fit all. Right. This is a situation, there, there are decks and vintages that don't run any lands or run one land, you know? So, um, you know, Belcher, I think, has what, Telerian Academy, maybe a mission workshop or two. Uh, but the point here is that If the idea is to create some sort of standardization to enable the viewer or the spectator to understand what's going on, this rule, if strictly enforced, may actually hinder that in some respect. In other words, a dredge player needs to have their graveyard visible so that you can actually see what the possible plays are, right?
0: I completely agree. I also find it interesting that they have codified something here about the exile zone must be near the library graveyard and must be distinct from the graveyard. That's something that you don't need to do on magic online because of the nature of a windowed interface magic online. You can drag yep. an exiled zone all over the, all over the gaming area. That's right. <laughs> I find that funny that now they've enforced a requirement that the, their own program doesn't enforce itself. Makes me wonder if the, if this will actually inform interface elements to Magic Online in a reverse kind of way?
1: Well, I think yeah, I think the mo- more important aspect of the Exiling rule is now that exiled cards, rather cards exiled by a permanent, must be placed in proximity to the exiling permanent. Uh, you know, the most obvious example of that is Chromax, but far from the only one. And there are a lot of you know when. I, I have to confess that the Magic Online is actually the opposite here, because in Magic Mm -hmm. Online, when you exile something, it kind of appends itself to the card in play. Sure. While also simultaneously appearing in the exile zone. I found that to be very distracting, to be candid. I don't want to see the card that's exiled with (laughs) Chromebox. I don't see the need for it. I mean, you you know, I understand that that people need to have a reference, but I find that to be confusing and and misleading. I mean, what is the card doing there, right? I mean, right. technically the card does there's no card underneath Chrome Mox. It doesn't exist. <laughs> the card is exiled. So when people actually place the card under Chrome Mox, I find that to be very strange.
0: Well, I think you've hit upon something operational but you haven't explicitly stated it, and it has to do with the interaction of the exiling and the relation to the permanent. In the case of Chrome Mox, all you need to know is one characteristic of that permanent. It's color. But for non-vintage formats, the go-to card for this example would be Oblivion Ring, which has a, an entire mechanic devoted to returning the Exiled Permanent to play. Uh, so knowing everything about the Exiled Permanent is key, especially if you have a format where multiple Oblivion Rings are played, which uh, Oblivion Ring formats tend to be. And, so there, you could make a very real distinction about whether or not the card that does the Exiling is also mechanically tied to the card it has Exiled in some way, right. and, and how closely. Because you could but, you could have a, a creature that comes into play and just says straight up exile target creature, right? Like a Necrotol right, style. Exactly. And if there's no if there's no mechanical connection to the card that's exiled once it's gone, then there's not a lot of reason to put it under it. But this right. rule would seem to loop that in and say, if you had such a necrotal, you'd be forced to put the exiled thing right under it, Right, and that can lead to situations where you're looking through your exile zone and missing cards that are there, because they're spread all over the place.
1: Well, back in the day when people played Oubliette on a creature, did they typically put the, the card under the Oubliette?
0: I would say yes.
1: I think that's my experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But in high levels of play, do people usually imprint the card? When they imprint something, they imprint it on the card? Does it depend on the card?
0: I think it has everything to do with the card. I think with Chrome Mox, many, many Chrome Mox players don't leave the card there. I think many of them put it off to the side. But I think almost everyone for Oblivion Ring and similar effects puts the card under it.
1: And what about Isochron Scepter? Probably put uh,
0: the card- they probably put the card under it because there's direct reference there. Yeah. So I think it's a mixed bag. I think players have intuitively been doing this mostly all along, but yeah. codifying it this way has interesting impacts. I wonder, <laughs> yeah. for, for coverage, for example, if you had a deck that had multiple ways of exiling things right. that had mechanical differences, like if you had a Chrome Mox and an Oblivion Ring, I could see some yes. actual confusion on the part of the coverage because of
1: well, it you, you could also imagine you could also imagine for example a card that retrieves something from the exile zone mm-hmm. that would be enormously confusing if someone's looking in their exile zone and they forget that a card has been exiled but it's not in the exile zone because right. it's underneath one of these cards in play. You know, yeah. it's not too long ago that there were a number of cards that did exactly that with the Wishes and yep. Ring of the Roof. You know, those cards were able to retrieve cards from the Exile Zone, and they did so quite frequently. Yep. And, and, you and could it's imagine funny, how, yeah.
0: all, it, all it would take is some good new card that involved Exile or a card reusing the Suspend mechanic, for example, to reinvigorate that use case. Because Pull from Eternity and the green creature that also does Pull from Eternity when it comes into play, I forget the name those two cards were played in any format where Suspend was a popular, powerful thing. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I'm just pointing out that there are potentially implications here that if rigidly enforced could create problems.
0: That's all I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I agree. I think they've gone down the right avenue here, but Magic is so complex that I think these rules will need to be bent in a couple of places under the guise of clarity. We will see. I'm very keen to see when and if there is a serious penalty for such a thing yeah. on camera at the vintage championship. <laughs> Well, because obviously the most severe thing I can envision here is a judge having to remind a player more than once. And possibly doling out a warning. And if a player is successful on camera and on camera multiple times in a tournament, and they accumulate multiple warnings for this issue, then there could be an upgrade to a game well, loss I, or something. Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't. I pity the dredge player because these, this is a distinct disadvantage <laughs> to dredge players. Yeah, you could, you could. I mean, even legacy dredge. with Let's assume you have a zero land dredge deck. You know
0: That's a good point. Or so, if you're playing something like the oops all spells or yeah. something else that just dumps its whole graveyard or its whole deck into its graveyard.
1: Yeah, and this this could be this could be really interesting.
0: <laughs> you know what's funny is There's no mention of the stack here. The stack is a zone that is implemented by players, in my experience, with a lot of variation. Some players who, every time they play a spell, they just put it straight into their discard pile, for example. Counter spells are not. That's right. And I find that interesting, especially from a coverage standpoint. Because if you and I have lamented in VSL coverage occasionally, and I have with others, the stack is actually one of the worst implemented interfaces on Magic Online. (laughs) And it's even worse for the observer, because as a player, you at least know how you got to a certain point, right? You clicked on this, they clicked on that, supposedly. But as a viewer, you can't tell whose spells are whose, or what's targeting what. You have to be in the interface to learn that information. That's
1: right. That's a good point.
0: And so it's even worse with cards, because cards have no targeting indicators in real life, and things with Storm that make copies have no visual indicator of how many copies there are, unless you lob a dice into the middle of the play area.
1: Well, just to sort of emphasize this point, the stack is one of the most important zones in Vintage. It sees more action than maybe even sort of attacking and defending. In many mm-hmm. And you can imagine like the sixth or seventh card on the stack maybe targeting the first card mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe targeting the third card. Happens all the time. Happens all the time in Vintage, especially with something like Misdirection, for example. Sure. Or, or you know, a card. Luster. Yeah, Fluster Storm is certainly the, the, the key example, but you have a lot of narrow counter magic that can only target specific card types and so you know you'll throw something on the stack later on that is targeting something mid-stack or the Mm -hmm. beginning is um and there's no direction here about how to how to deal with those kinds of situations, which only goes to again emphasize the different the different forms of emphasis that each format brings to visual play
0: definitely we'll see if they end up uh broadening this set of rules maybe in print it'll be a lot more detailed
1: yeah well the video coverage rule uh It seems like common sense to me. I don't know why judges wouldn't be able to use video coverage anyway. Wouldn't judges have the right to look at at that in in any case?
0: Well, there was a a significant amount of debate on that very topic, and many people felt the way you just stated. But the big counterexample to that was simply that they didn't want feature matches to carry more importance or be governed by different rules than all other non-featured matches. They didn't want the rules to be different just because you were on camera. That's, been, that's been the primary resistance so to just, this.
1: you would just interview the people and do the same sort of investigation process. Yes, yes. That that to me sounds like, I'm just going to, you know, I don't know, ignore compelling evidence. <laughs> <even though> I, <laughs> yes. It's like holding your hands over your eyes. You know, see no evil ear, no evil I think that's a common sense thing, but I mean, you're just benefiting from the existence of video coverage. You're not treating something differently um, to treat something differently.
0: Yep. And that is a common response to that position that I've heard from others as well. I I tend to agree with you. You're not diminishing regular games. You're enhancing uh, covered games, but the flip side is, is that you could make a case that players in covered games are at a disadvantage because there is greater scrutiny. Uh, a, A play error that might not be caught at a table is almost entirely frequently caught uh, on camera and often things that are missed by judges in real time are caught after the fact we've had a number of high profile bannings and 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 uh, suspensions because of coverage of things that were discovered on youtube after the fact and you have to say as a player that seems like well, that seems like a pretty uh, big pitfall well you now, know it, some of those things many yeah. people believe were intentional so we're catching cheaters which is n- not to be understated
1: right i mean my take on this is is that video coverage is a big plus and and it's a plus not only for um spectators and so forth. But I also think it's a a big plus for analysts because we get to watch matches (laughs) break down plays that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. I don't see that as any different, right? It's simply a, a limited opportunity to review play whether you're doing it to see if the rules are being followed or to see you know the lines of play taken I don't think really matters I think the same it's the same effect I mean players who play in feature matches are, are doing generally well or they're big names and they're receiving extra scrutiny for their play I don't see why they shouldn't also, you know, judges and tournament organizers shouldn't get the benefit of the coverage to evaluate whether they violated the rules as well.
0: Broadly speaking, I would say I agree with you. I think there are still a few pitfalls here, and I think they will only come into play in a small number of occasions. I think the small pitfalls... What are those? I I just think that players... Players who do not play perfectly will have their play penalized more on camera than they would off. And I think for some players that is a detractant. I think it's a deterrent. They will view being on camera as a bad thing, but Broadly speaking, I agree with you about the upsides. I think the upsides outweigh that.
1: You know, this is maybe a bit mechanical, but maybe there could be, down the road, as a way of resolving any objections that might arise, some sort of guidelines for determining who receives a feature match, so that it's perceived to be fair Hmm. in that respect.
0: Interesting. Interesting. That way... Yes. <laughs> it's noticed. funny, we, uh, you know, before this feature match coverage has, has carried with it very little other downside. Some pros have cited feature matches in, in tournaments as being a downside what, in that it gives away information, especially early in events. Their decks can be featured and give away advantage that way. But mostly that's the only objection to being on camera that I've heard voiced that seem to carry much weight. And again, only for the, the fortunate few at the pro tour level, it's a different issue, but I guess we're talking about things like at Star City Opens or at semi-pro events, yeah.
1: If, if Wizards organized player, or whoever was able to come up with some objective criteria for selecting feature matches, then any sorts of objections along those lines that, that the selection is unfair would really have no weight. You know, they'd be basically purely performance-based criteria, right? So you would say, you know, the top-seeded player in whatever bracket so long as they haven't already had a feature match for example will be the number 1 feature match in whatever the tournament mm. you know that would it would just be the price of success
0: <laughs> i think that's worth exploring i think the well i believe that for the sake of coverage and the benefit of the game via coverage that something that was as prescribed as that might actually be a bad thing just because you could end up ignoring certain scenarios sure. that are more interesting for coverage. Yeah. Uh, so you get you get what I'm saying. I mean, sometimes coverage wants to dig further down in the standings to find an interesting player or deck.
1: No doubt. No doubt, but but you know you can't have it both ways. Well, you can have it both ways. Maybe it shouldn't be both ways, right? <laughs> have these hyper-prescribed rules for layout, for coverage, for all these things, yeah. and then not also have some sort of counterbalancing mechanisms to make sure that these things are implemented fairly. I see. That's, all, that's yeah. all I'm saying.
0: I also think the, the notion of players who are punished by being on camera Those are not the sort of players that we need to cater to necessarily. So I don't mean to imply that that's everyone. I just think there are some players, and not because of unsporting behavior or because of cheating, but because of the nature of their play, their deck choice, their familiarity with the format or some such, might be punished more for mechanical errors on camera. We'll just have to see. We'll have to feel these things out. It's worth noting that they're launching all these things again with the Pro Tour, and they're not official for all other tournaments and formats yet. But you have to imagine that this is a precursor to that. Let's talk about that mulligan rule, though. So for those of you who haven't read it, the mulligan rule is basically when you mulligan to anything below your typical starting hand size of 7, you get an additional, once you've kept your hand, I should say, you get an additional scry 1 before the first turn of the game as a pre-game action. So if you, if you mulligan to 6 or lower, you get an additional scry 1 before the game starts, after you've decided to keep your hand. This helps to defray the negative impacts of having fewer cards, of course, and it also basically makes every mulligan hand that has ever been or ever will be slightly better. <laughs> what they're trying to do is uh, obviously decrease the the non-games, to use PV's uh, terminology, decrease the games of Magic that are just defined by the fact that one player mulliganed.
1: Right. So before we delve into analyzing this, just describe what that will look like in practice. You're sitting down, your opponent announces they're going to keep their hand. Mm-hmm. You decide to mulligan. Let's say you mulligan to five, your opponent is on the play, they go first, then what happens?
0: Well, the, your, your scry one would have been before they play. It would, be, it would happen at the same time as ley lines. Okay. Yeah.
1: So you're going to scry, you're going to look at your top two cards, so you're, you're, you're going to look at your top card, decide yeah. whether to bottom it or keep it on top. Exactly. So you get a kind of a, like a peek. So if you're on the draw, you'll decide whether you want to draw that card or not. Pretty if you're on much. play, you can just get the benefit of bottoming a card. So before we tease out the implications, it doesn't matter whether you mulligan to six or you mulligan to zero. You only get to scry one. Right, And this is not, again, to emphasize, this rule is only being implemented in one tournament. For now. For now. Right.
0: But it's worth noting for historical relevance that the current mulligan rule was also only implemented for one tournament. Which (laughs) was what? The Pro Tour in Paris, which is why many players still refer to it as a Paris mulligan.
1: (laughs) I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. And so there's a very real chance that this mulligan might go down as the Origins mulligan. Uh, It doesn't quite have the same ring. But anyway...
1: So before we delve into the details, I think it's important to remind our listeners something you just mentioned, which is that the Mulligan rule has never really been stable through the existence of magic. And there's been, in other words, it's changed dramatically over the. Years. The original Mulligan rule was the zero land no, one land mulligan, right?
0: Zero, one, or seven, actually.
1: Or seven, yeah. That's right. Good point.
0: And so for players who don't know, remember, or ne- just now learned of the existence of that, it used to be, back in the day, that if you fanned open your opening hand and you had no lands, one land, or all seven of your cards were lands, how, that you could display your hand to your opponent and shuffle in and go back to seven cards.
1: How, how funny would that seven land mulligan be for legacy lands?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It'd be so good. But to your point, yes, the mulligan rule has changed several times throughout the years.
1: You know, I think I applaud. I think Wizards is, they deserve credit for experimenting with some of the fundamental ways that we play the game. You know, Wizards has not been overly conservative about tweaking some of these major, you know, fundamental tenets of play, right? I mean, they have changed how attacking works they've eliminated mana burn they've not just tinkered but dramatically changed the card face um and and i think that this willingness to experiment with to improve and tinker is a really good thing and to be honest the mulligan rule is not something that a lot of us think about a lot in terms of how it could be tweaked or improved and and i think this is pretty fascinating opportunity to engage that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i agree completely they probably considered more dramatic changes one of the f- one of the immediate responses i saw in several media were that why is this not proportional to how much you've mulliganed right why, why don't you scry for seven minus your hand size how right. much that is <laughs> and I, I mean i think it's reasonable and i'm certain that it was on their list there's no way it wouldn't have been what would their creative and mechanical mindset so They probably simply ruled it out and said, no, this is enough. We don't want to make the beginning of the game even more complex and prone to error. Because you know that version would be prone to error. People would look at the wrong number of cards and we'd have all these uh, warnings and stuff at tournaments. So Scry 1 across the board is a good place to start and see how good it is. And also, they almost certainly want to balance out not giving too much of an advantage to certain archetypes. And I think it's it's pretty clear that if you start off scrying up to seven cards or something, certain decks, like Dredge, for example, would gain even more consistency.
1: No, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, so first of all, our our listeners are definitely going to want to analyze who, who benefits from a rule change like this. Sure. And that's an important question because rules are not neutral. Rules structure the game and they have strategic implications. And so we just need to be upfront about that and recognize that. Mm -hmm. And I think the point that you just made, a rule like that, would have a dramatic implication for a deck like Dredge. You know, if it, if you're a Dredge player and you have dredged, let's say a three, you mulligan to three, would you pr- you're probably better off at that point mulliganing to zero under a rule like that than keeping a two-card hand that has, like, you know, no Bizarre. I mean, there's not even a problem about it. You're almost certainly better off because you can find the Bizarre in your next turn by looking seven cards.
0: Yeah, you, you make and a good it point. Also,
1: and there's a lot of unintended, unintended consequences. For example, just the mere fact serum powders would become dramatically better just by thinning your library you know a, a, a scry 7 would dramatically allow you to you know look much more deeply into your deck especially a much thinner deck say that you've used two serum powders yeah uh, so you know what i'm trying to say is rules changes are not neutral they are not symmetrical with respect to their strategic implications the second the second key point and i just wanted to be upfront about that the second key point is that in wizards has to balance both the need for simplicity and comprehensibility and for new players to be able to Play the game
2: right. against
1: you know fairness and making things uh, you know. It, it, there's only so much fine tuning you can do before you make the game ridiculously complicated. <laughs> I, I think Scry One automatically straddles that. I mean, that's you know, Scry is not like flying. It's something you have to learn and then do right.
0: Yeah. Uh, And this will will be an increase in complexity for newer players and something that even though those of us uh, listening to this are probably spikish players, we play Tournament Magic, we think about Vintage, which has so much complexity, it's not hard for us to grasp. But for a new player at a pre-release, after they've said, I'm going to keep this hand, now you tell them, okay, now you scry one. (laughs) yeah That's not not intuitive necessarily. It's something some people are going to have to learn and be taught.
1: Right. Everyone, everyone who plays is going to have to be taught. Not just yeah. some, everyone that basically who who doesn't know it.
0: I mean, but for those of us who've been playing for ten or twenty years, we view this as all upside, right? We want more consistency, and it's it's we're going to be excited to do it. I can't wait to do this the next time I'm allowed or the first time I'm allowed to. But,
1: but that's why they <laughs> did Anubir. But that's I mean, for that same reason is right complexity.
0: Right. Um so they you're right they're, they're they're towing a line here and I completely understand that's why they went with scry 1 rather than some value of x that had to be determined
1: Yeah I mean, the, the mulligan procedure has already become complex enough. They keep, they have changed. For example, it used to be that the active player or the first player mulligans all of their mulligans first, and then the second player does all theirs. Right. Then they changed that rule to The first mulligan, the active player takes, then the second player has to do it before the second before yeah. the the non-active player begins their mulligans before the active player begins their second mulligan. Right. Um, as a way of trying to you know save time, uh, you know. But, I mean, for example, if you're playing dredge, the mulligan process can take heck. That could take five to ten minutes yeah. per game. Yeah. And and when you put things in, if you put things into it like ley lines, it just becomes even more complicated. Yep. You know? And serum powder for sure. Um. So they they really are towing a careful line, but this is I think their willingness to experiment is a welcome change. Now let's let's begin to explore its potential. You know, impacts on, in terms of strategy. Mm-hmm. Who benefits here?
0: And why? Broadly speaking, it's decks with less homogenous cards benefit. Yes. Decks where you're looking for a particular card, either for your primary strategy or for the matchup, if you're talking post-sideboard, for example, or decks that, just broadly speaking, need a certain thing to win, which is exactly. why we go to Dredge as the logical extreme, Yeah. <laughs> as a deck that really wants Bizarre Bagdad above any other 56 cards in the deck. So that's the logical extreme, but there's plenty of of area in between. Decks like uh, workshop decks that function far better if they have access to a workshop. So that it helps decks in like that in that respect, and it punishes decks that are very homogenous. Decks that are very uniform don't rely on any one card, like Delver. Like well, Delver has other advantages too. But something like a, a bug fish, for oh. example, where the power level of the cards is very even.
1: Well, I have to say, I think... I have to disagree with you on the Delver one. Well, yeah,
0: that's why I caught myself, because there's another reason for Delver to benefit. Right. Go ahead, <laughs> Well, right. yeah, I, I, what I should have said about Delver is Delver does have a homogeneity of cards, but there's another reason it benefits, and that's because of the mana base. Delver exactly. is required, due to its construction and low mana count, to keep very low mana hands. A right. one mana hand is frequently a, a valid keep for Delver, and the fact that you might... Um, mulligan to six and keep your one land hand, it's good, but you still get a ton of benefit by seeing that one card because the fact that it might be a land or another cantrip or a gush, your lands are so carefully metered out in a deck like Delver that that you gain a ton of information just by having access to that one more thing. What am I about to preordain into? Oh, there's a second land on top. That means I don't want to fetch here. It it changes tons of stuff, tons of stuff. It does, exactly right. So it's not for the same reason, though. It's not because of the spikiness and power level. It's because the deck construction has made decision-making about your mana management so important.
1: I think your general point is exactly right, though. I think decks like Workshop are the ones that are punished the most because they're so homogenous. Whereas decks, decks, you know, the opponent, the Workshop opponent gets a lot out of it too because they get to find the land they need or the, the Hercules Recall they need or
0: whatever. Yeah, that's a second um, level, right. It's, if your deck is hurt by uh, certain cards, like Workshops and, and Dredge tend to be, then there's an uh, associated benefit for your opponent. Yes. Uh, so but I guess it, it, it hurts, it helps decks that have very linear strategies, but it hurts them also be, by virtue of their opponent's benefits, Yes. We'll, time will tell whether or not it's, um, it's a wash. How, yeah. You know, how it balances out.
1: It, it, just let, let me be upfront. It's unlikely to be a complete wash. There will be marginal <laughs> yeah. advantages and marginal disadvantages, and those will accumulate over time into, right. non, tri, into non-trivial effects. Um, yep. And, and it, so we're trying to assess what those are right now. I think you're also right to point out there are going to be sort of immediate first-order effects, then sort of second-level effects. And then there's going to be a whole category of unintended consequences. Yeah, And I want to touch on those for a second, but not yet. I want to sort of flesh out who we think strategically benefits and who doesn't. Um, I, I think that you're right. I think that the decks that are, you know, it's sort of like the preordain effect. The decks that have a lot of singletons and use preordains benefit from seeing or not or sort of bottoming those cards far more frequently. So I think, you know, those kinds of decks that have a lot of singletons probably benefit. I think decks that are looking for single cards like Bazaars or Oath benefit, or in the case of Delver, lands benefit. Mm-hmm. But I think the decks that are broadly homogenous, like workshops, are hurt the most by it.
0: Yeah. I think workshops still will get occasional benefits because the land pacing for workshops, it's not like they're they yeah. need to find the lands, Work. but the order of them matters a lot. So there's still some benefit to be had there. But... I think it's, as you commented earlier, I think it's disproportionately punishes workshops because they can't gain as much benefit from finding yeah. a specific card or getting rid of one as their opponents can. That's right. Their opponents get so much more value by hitting that one key land drop or finding, getting that one turn closer to their sideboard card, the Hercule's Recall or the Key or I mean... Workshops, the, en- the, yeah. the weapons against Workshop are far more high and spiky in power level than are any of Workshop's individual cards.
1: And one of the reasons for that is that Workshop r- plays out of its opening hand. Yes. And so the, the, the Scry thing is much less important. You know, it, um, the other thing is that, you know, consider a deck like Oath. You know, say you Scry and you see a Gaia's Blessing type card or uh, a Gristle.
0: Or a Gristle brand. Brand, Yeah.
1: yeah. You're going to be so delightful.
0: <laughs> well, and modern modern Oath has switched into a a little bit more of a of a Swiss Army knife kind of combo deck in yeah. the, given the prevalence of Show and Tell. So the interaction of the triad of Oath, Show and Tell, and Gristlebrand, that interaction gets bolstered by this a lot because right. it's very common that you'll have only one out of the three in your opening hand, and depending on which one of the three you have informs which one of the other two you want to draw right right no matter which one it is you right. really want to draw one of the other two and you really never right. want to draw the other one yeah.
1: Right. exactly you have both so you really want the four orchard whatever yeah if exactly. you have the Schoenfeld, You want the gristle brand otherwise you've never wanted all the
0: crystal exactly yeah and so decks with certain combinations that are uh, critical combinations like that also benefit a great deal good point good point point. and um, some people have, po- have pointed out things like uh similarly splinter twin in modern has a similar kind of effect if i've got one of the calves of the combo it directly informs what card i want to draw
1: right so i want to i want to just switch to this this question of the unintended consequences for a minute Mm -hmm. um kevin let me just ask you if you were wizards and you wanted to evaluate whether this mulligan rule is an improvement or not what sort of metrics or criteria would you use to evaluate that
0: are are you talking about paper magic or online?
1: I'm just I'm talking about paper. Well, let's just say I'm talking paper magic because this is <laughs> be held, this is going to be held at, at Pro Tour Origin Magic Origin. Yeah, so that's a good point. You, you are running Pro Tour Magic Origin, and the tournament was a big success. And you want to decide whether the Mulligan rule worked, was an improvement or not. How would you determine whether it was?
0: Well, I don't know if they have this data, but the statistician in me would want to simply know win loss percentages of different Mulligan values. As a whole, throughout the whole tournament uh, for uh, an event before this versus with it, I'd want to yeah. know how often how much ba- how much worse is the win percentage for mulligan to six five four et cetera before this rule and then after it. That seems like the simplest measure because you want to yeah. punish people less for their mulligans
1: yes I agree that that would be a value let me just say that would be the, that to me is the obvious metric but but well one of the obvious metrics, but i I would be very hesitant to draw any strong conclusion from that because. Obviously formats dramatically influence the yeah. how have, so so I think that's a very, very difficult metric to draw any firm or even tentative conclusion from. What, but, but I, I, just,
0: I'd, I'd like to bolster that, though, because I think I see exactly what you're saying. I, I would say, if possible, I would control for format, meaning I would do it with the same format before and after, and I would have the metric broken down by archetype. There you go. But, but even, I, don't, I don't think that's actually possible. So.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if it is either. I guess what I'm getting at is I'm not sure how you measure whether this would be an improvement or not let me just let me just point out one potential other metric that that goes to the unintended consequences question, not just evaluating it generally. Sure. one potential unintended consequence is that this is a slight incentive to mulligan. <laughs> so you know that, that I mean, if you're looking at a borderland hand of seven and you're thinking, you know what? Yeah, uh, I would normally probably keep this, but I'm probably going to mulligan because I get that scry thing. You could, should a criteria be not just the fairness, but whether you actually increase the number of mulligans. As to say, increasing the number of mulligans is probably not a good thing. (laughs) from a time perspective you know term and organizer perspective and so is that something that you would measure
0: well measure absolutely Um, how but to your well to your do you do you mean the count of mulligans that's easily measured yeah
1: Yeah, how would you do that i mean in a pro tour
0: you're talking about the viability of measuring that right in paper magic
1: Both. both. i'm just saying you know look you're developing a rule a new and you want to test it but how do you evaluate whether it's you know its effects
0: yeah well if if you're I'm answering your question, I think, from the standpoint of conceptual, this is what I would measure if I could. I don't know if they're going to go around and ask people how many times they mulliganed each match. Yeah, they yeah. might. It's the Pro Tour. They have a lot of control. They have a captive audience, right? Yeah. You could
1: you could ask them on the match slip to say how many times did you mulligan.
0: Absolutely. And they might do something like that. Yeah. They, they might do it more anecdotally. They might actually implement a measuring system, as you just described, match slip style. So if I were them, I would be doing something like that, sure. Uh, but the thing is, well... Shoot. So because they're implementing it only in a paper tournament, they would have to do something like that. They would have to make a concerted effort to gather the data. If they wanted to implement it for a period of time on Magic Online, then all the metrics are there for them at their fingertips. Right. So there's that. And they could take an established format and just say, hey, for all the for all the standard cues or whatever for the next two weeks, we're using this mulligan rule. And they could do before and after measurements by archetype.
1: Yeah, but, but, then, but then why bring this up at a pro tour? I mean, if you can't measure it, if you don't know what its effects are going to be, you know, maybe there is a metric that I... I well, I, I think
0: because we haven't covered all the possible ways to measure, that's why.
1: Yeah, but I'm I'm, I'm asking you, what, what would they be?
0: Because they value very highly the opinion both actual and perceived of their professional players so
1: they're just be they be getting basically word of mouth qualitative data
0: yeah well i exp- that's what i don't want to pigeonhole them as only qualitative data but i think that's very important to them Fair enough. I think they've made a number of decisions lately that have been heavily influenced, sometimes even to the point of reversing themselves based on feedback via social media and, and subsequent articles. Right. That's sadly, I say sadly because it makes them look bad, I think, but it also makes them look responsive. So I think that's a big part of this choice yeah. to do it at the Pro Tour. Also, also, I think that there's benefit to doing it at a high profile event because the community is more likely to provide feedback this way. If they had just turned it on at FNM, then they'd get some complainers, they might get vocal minority kind of things. By putting it at a high-profile event that people will be looking for it actively, I think you're more likely to get genuine discourse or more focus and analysis on the part of the community as well. So the pure statistician in me wants them to do it just on Magic Online, control for format and archetype. But they're living in a world where social media and professional players, day in and day out, are heavily influencing policy.
1: That's that's something. This is a, that's sort of the crux of what I'm driving
0: at, yeah. and I'm, which
1: is to say that you know it's kind of odd that they decided to test this at the Pro Tour rather than on an on online or on, on Magic Online, where they can control, observe, and measure mm-hmm. every effect. Um, well, you know, holistically, um, you know, we are in the era of big data. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think that you should be going to people. Look, let me rephrase that. I have no objection to going to people and getting anecdotal feedback, but I don't think that that should be a big component of how you evaluate something like this. And I think that there have to be metrics for evaluating something like this. You know, you can't just try it and then say, that seemed like it worked well. Let's do it again. <laughs> or let's, you know, let's make it the de facto rule for the for the game. I, I think that the most important question from my perspective is the question I I already articulated about unintended consequences. Does this appreciably increase the number of mulligans that people take? Yeah. If, if the answer is yes, for example, let's say, I don't know, let's say that 15% of all games. Are mulligan uh, opening hands are mulligan, right? Yeah. If if it increases that substantially, like a statistically significant number, I would yep. say that the effect is probably undesirable. No matter how you know, no matter how much more fairer it, it makes, yeah. The game, you know, but I, that's just my, because I'm waiting, you know, process and time management more than. <laughs> You know, it, I mean, it's, it's, and it's also important to mention that in paper magic, you know, in online magic, mulligans don't take one, they take one second more, right? Because yep. you just press yes. But in paper magic, that's not the case.
0: Yeah, cards have been banned for less, lesser offenses. Exactly. <laughs> and more cards maybe should be or will be. Yes, you make a very good point. And I don't see, well, I think it's a given. It's not some. It's not a tautological guarantee, but I think, almost everyone would agree that there will be a net increase in mulligans. There's no way it couldn't, given that you're incentivizing them. (laughs) So, your scenario of the marginal 7 versus the now significantly better 6, meaning significantly likely to be better than before 6, yeah, more mulligans, definitely, absolutely. And to your point... Uh, what would broadly speaking, that's not a good thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I'll have to walk back my statement about statistically significant. There's going to be a statistically significant increase in mulligans. But the yeah. question is, you know, there, there has to be some threshold unacceptable level. Like a 50% increase in mulligans is probably not going to be conservative. Yeah,
0: exactly. There's <laughs> definitely a point at which it doesn't matter how apparently beneficial they are. Mulligans are bad for tournament magic. My instincts tell me... <laughs> That we're we're not done revisiting this topic. Of course, even if this rule is viewed as a success and becomes the norm, and I think a lot of players would love it, I don't think we're de- we're done evaluating this topic. I think the logical extreme of this is to change how opening hands are determined just before the mulligan process. If you're okay. if you're willing to go this far, then why not make the opening seven something where you start by scrying a certain number. Maybe you start the game with a scry 7 and then you draw 7 cards. Maybe you start with more. Maybe the game starts with yeah. scry 10. No. And then no, you draw think, 7 cards.
1: You know, um we've done a lot of shows where we've discussed designing magic cards in the past. Mm-hmm. So in the context of you make the card, we've talked about um design generally like what kinds of design principles or design approaches are really desirable for vintage and we talked about for example a couple key principles like designing cards that are um both better and situationally better and situationally worse than sure. existing playable cards to exa- expand the overall pie of playable we've talked about cards that have extreme uh costs or, or extreme drawbacks
0: and we're like, going to look at one tonight. Like
1: uh, Lion's Eye <laughs> Diamond or Pact of Negation as potential labels. Um, but but this is an area we really haven't spent a lot of time, which is exploring alternative ways to, you know, basically begin the game. Like... Mm-hmm. Um, to, to Mulligan or draw your hand, and I think that this just broaching the subject, just the idea of revisiting this issue, opens a doorway to um, to these kinds of discussions. I think should be very welcome.
0: Yeah, and that's I didn't pick up on it when I was brainstorming it myself, but I'm I'm starting to see now that what you've said about the net increase in Mulligans not necessarily being a good thing. There's obviously a threshold at which it becomes a bad thing. It seems like more I think about it that this is not just a net upside decision, and it probably contributes to why they've made it so incremental, why they're stuck with just the one. Because you could make a case for a bigger number. You could make a case for alternative procedures. The procedure I mentioned where you start the game with something like scry 7 and then draw 7. That would be much faster to implement than mulliganing. It's, it's worth noting you, that way you could execute yeah, yeah. that much faster. But I think it would err on the side of helping combo decks too much, probably. So in other words,
1: you're stuck with your opening hand, but instead you would just scry whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you just look at the top seven. You can put any number of them on the bottom, but then you draw seven. Now, whether or not you'd still be able to mulligan after that, I haven't thought yeah. the matter through. Oh, the point okay. is. I,
1: I thought you meant you open your opening. You opening you draw your opening seven. And you cannot mulligan it, but instead you can look at your top seven and scry.
0: No, what I was talking about was more along yeah. the lines of you scry before drawing your hand. Got it. You look at the top seven. It's basically like you pick which ones of those would be in your opening hand, put the rest on the bottom and then, and then draw up until you have seven, right? Right. I thought that would be a major increase in consistency for certain yeah, archetypes now, so I, I'm not proposing that, but... It is. It would be operationally much faster than Mulliganing right. to six.
1: And it should also be mentioned that, that the time added is not just the additional Mulligan incentive. It's scry, it's scry takes, as well. Scry, yes, yeah, scry takes time. So this is more than just you know an additive time dimension. It's,
0: yeah, the scry. I mean, in some cases, is going to be a stop and think about it situation. Yeah. Which adds about as much time as evaluating a new hand does within yes. reason.
1: Yeah, not necessarily shuffling, but exactly. About, yep. You know, I, but, but this all goes to my point that you know, they need to have some metric to evaluate, and I don't know what that would be. I have no idea in a paper format how you do that.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think you do have some idea, but the question is, there are qual- you can make quantifiable measurements, but the value is still qualitative, right? You can tell me how many more mulligans there are. You can tell me win percentages. You can tell me all kinds of stuff, but you're going to have some things going up, some levers going up and down tournament time you might want to measure the number of draws yes. in a paper event just all these yes. things you can measure yes. all those things and as some things rise and some things fall it's the, the what your target state is is quantitative I'm sorry it's qualitative right yeah but, but i if think you, that, if, you that, magic, that's if you could draw up magic if you could draw up magic and the only lever or the only thing you could guarantee was how many mulligans there were <laughs> right you could just say how many mulligans do you want to happen in this game of magic in a tournament on average <laughs> if you could pick that number it's a qualitative judgment as to what that number should be.
1: Well, we're repeating ourselves a little yeah. bit, but it seems to me that the goal is to, the goal overall is to minimize the harm of a mulligan mm-hmm. to, to the um, capacity to have a meaningful game. Yeah. Right. So, so that's what this, this new suggested rule is in attempting to ameliorate is the, the balance, the loss of cards with some card quality, virtual yep. card advantage. Um, so, you know, certainly the metric that you mentioned is important, but I also think the metric that I mentioned is important as well. And But, but one way of dealing with that is that they should have some basic benchmarks that they would like to see, right? Some thresholds. So. Yeah.
0: I mean, so, it, I, I would give them far... If we had infinite time, I'd give a far more sophisticated answer to your initial question. But if you would measuring it on Magic Online, I would also start with things like... Sp- Given a baseline of the format, some things like spells per game <laughs> at, um, as yeah. compared to starting hand size, because non-games would be relatively easy to suss out. If you had a, if you had a, if you kept an opening seven, but you you played zero spells that game, you know those kind of anomalies are easy to to point out. Yeah. And so you could, you could compare before and after how many seven-card non-games there were versus six-card games, you know, that kind of thing. You compare the relative yeah. shift in that dynamic. I mean, with the, the metrics they've got available to them in Magic Online, there's, they can get very specific about these qualitative concepts. Yes. <clears throat> well, I want to talk about one more thing with regard to this mulligan rule, and that is specific mechanical impacts. Because there are some cards and decks there's some cards that interact specifically with the act of scrying that change. That's right. uh, the simplest fundamental one in vintage, I would say is fetch lands. Yes. If you mulligan to six and you're on the draw and you get that scry and you got a fetch land in your hand and there's a land on top, you've got a, a tree of decisions then to make about do I want to fetch on turn one or is it more valuable me for me to just wait and draw that land that's on top? I mean, there's whole sequencing impacts given that you know that that land. And similarly, a uh, very popular cards throughout the Delver archetype and many others in vintage.
1: Delver itself.
0: <laughs> Delver itself, yeah. right. The, that deck has probably the most cards per capita that interact with the top of the deck from of you know of any deck in magic history. Sensei's Divining Top notwithstanding, you got your preordains and your Delvers and possibly Mystical Tutor and Ponders and Brainstorms. I mean, you've got a high density of cards that interact with the top of the deck, and Delver is obviously cheap among them. If if you're on the draw and you've got a non-fetched blue source and you've got a Delver in your hand, then that Scry becomes highly functional. It's actually improving the efficacy of your Delver of Secrets, your first turn Delver of Secrets that otherwise is very difficult to manipulate.
1: Sorry, you said if you're on the draw and you have a non-blue fetch land?
0: If you have a non-blue land. Land.
1: Non-blue uh, land, like what?
0: No, I'm I'm sorry. A non-fetch blue land is what I said. Oh, non-fetch. <laughs> non, that is what I meant, and I think it's what okay. I said. Non-fetch blue land. Got because it. a fetch land undoes the scry yeah. entirely. Right. But if you're just holding the island or volcanic island, you don't need to fetch to undo the scry, then your Delver gets much better. Right. It's not a sure thing or anything, but you'll at least have information. It might be might be a sure thing, but it might not be. But anyway, uh, other, th- other cards too, uh, simply put, things like Mystical Tutor, Vampiric Tutor, right? That's a very common thing in Vintage. Play your first land, maybe you vamp on your end step, but who knows? Maybe that card that's on top is one that changes your plan and you don't need to vamp. <laughs> I mean, there's... But Fetchlands, I think, are the simplest one.
1: Well, let me let me ask you the reverse. Uh, well, let me ask you the reverse at the risk of, of sidetracking us here. But are there any cards that, that... Is there any effect that can create a benefit by knowing your bottom card?
0: Yes. I think Oath of Druids is probably the best example. Um because True. you if you see that gristle brand and you're playing a two gristle brand build then you know not to oath again without shuffling whereas right. not knowing it means you have a very high percentage of success but if you know it and it's there then your success rate goes to 0 for the second oath. Yeah. I've lost in tournaments and many oath players have with a two creature build because the last creature was in the bottom one two or three cards. Right. Yeah. So yes, it's it's a narrow corner case, but absolutely it is. And also certain decks that rely on a a singleton, right? So yeah. if, you, if you're playing Grixis Control and you mulligan to six, and the top card of your deck is Voltaic Key, that's that's huge information. It is. If your hand has Time Vault or Tinker or a Tutor, then that's a pretty that's a pretty strong card. If it has none of those other things, then you might want to put it on bottom. Similarly, if you're, I mean, Tinker targets obviously, if yeah. bottom cards, Blightsteel. Colossus. That's the best place for it. (laughs) But there's so many individual synergistic combos in Vintage that it's easy to construct a scenario where a card goes dramatically up or down in value but what i'm talking about is i mean those are more tactical things it's interacting with your opening hand that's one thing but i'm talking about actual functional once you've started tapping your mana and playing the cards knowing the top card of your library makes certain cards far better most of them in the in the delver archetype
1: your delver example is, is excellent i mean i have found myself on more than one occasion
0: setting up delver
1: and playing it primarily to help me screen my next draw you know so i'll I'll keep the fetch land in play and the Delver there, not because I want to flip it and attack, but because I want to make my next draw as as maximally useful as possible. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, I've even found myself. This is going to be odd, but I've, on at least once, I believe this is true. I have shuffled a card that would flip Delver, but no, I, rather I, fl- I flip, I flip the Delver and then I have shuffled that card away. Yeah, I've done that many times. Oh sure. Lightning bolts is, is a main example of that, or Plow. Yeah. Um, yeah. You where, want to
0: flip the Delver, but it's not the right card to draw. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's not. I mean, you don't even care whether you flip the Delver. You just don't want to draw that card. <laughs> That's the yeah. more...
0: <laughs> well and as we're going to discuss in our NYse open analysis the card thought scour has cropped up and started to see some play in vintage and it's hard to come up with an example that's more concrete than that right there if, oh, if you're going to sh- thought scour yeah. yourself you want to put useful things in your discard pile and this scry lets you do that
1: and and you'll know exactly what's going to be there
0: yeah precisely. <laughs> yeah. And that amplifies the power of cards like Snapcaster Mage or Yawgmoth's Will or similar. Hmm, So I think there's, under the heading of Unintended Consequences, I think they have just kind of accepted a fair bit of literal interaction with Scry in Eternal formats that is not as impactful in things like standard or modern. Well it's impactful in modern. There's a couple of interactions there. Thought scour has seen some play in modern. Any format that has Delve, for example, can benefit from this, basically. If you're planning to mill yourself or if you've got a strategy that involves cards that represent multiple cards in your discard pile, like ThoughtScour, I mean knowing the top card is imminently valuable. Fascinating. Yeah. It also
1: has a much, a much bigger impact than smaller your library. So you, you know, magic has tended towards uniformity when it comes to its rules. Uh, you wonder what the impact may be on a deck. It's 40 cards in a limited
0: environment. Wow, very good point. Those decks tend, yeah, those decks tend to be. They have. An, <laughs> wow, that's a really interesting point. I, in my experience, limited decks tend to be kind of like dredge decks, but <laughs> they have the inverse kind of goals. It's not like it only runs if you find one of four cards, but the power level of two cards. to four cards, is way above the others. And so it's not like you're mulliganing the two just to get your big fatty, but but being able to find it that much better on a mulligan is heavily impactful.
1: Like a mulligan to six might just be just as good as a seven-card hand.
0: It, right, when the, the opportunity cost of finding that other card is so much powerful, more powerful than the average gray ogre you've got.
1: Because in a sense, a mulligan to six... We haven't said this before, but let's make it explicit. In a sense, a mulligan to six can permit you to see more cards than a, a seven a hand of seven. Yes. Because you have the potential to see eight cards. No, you'll not see eight, but you'll have access to eight on your first draw.
0: Well, so to and your th- point... No, I see your point, exactly. Okay. If, you, if you look at the six, your mulligan represents... I'm sorry, your scry represents this, well, two is, cards. Yes, exactly. Because yes. you get to look at one, and if you bottom it, then your draw is a different card. That's an eighth card, right? Right, exactly, right. You have access to see one more card than a seven-card hand does. That is to say, a seven-card hand on the play versus a six-card plus scry on the draw. (laughs) No, but your point is well made. Scry 1 actually represents two cards. Scry N actually represents seeing N plus 1 cards.
1: Uh, Let's put this under the category of also unintended consequences. I wonder if this is going to shift the play-draw calculus in any way.
0: Oh, yeah. I think it does in some cases. Just a few cases. I think that um, in Vintage, not very much. Only in really in certain matchups. Maybe heavy control matchups or super attrition y matchups like certain oh, workshop yes. mirrors. Land still <laughs> the landstill mirror? The landstill mirror comes to mind. Yeah, but the thing is, I think you already want to draw in the landstill mirror, so this doesn't really change that. But I have a feeling there will be some scenarios, yes. Probably far less measurable or noticeable than things like win loss ratios overall. Huh. But we'll see. That's just another one of those things that could be seen. If they look at the whole of Magic Online play draw before and after this, it'll be a trivial matter to say whether or not there's a statistically significant difference. Well,
1: this has been a fascinating topic, but we, we are. We've got we have a lot to cover.
0: Today. <laughs> I, I know it, right? We want to hear from our audience. What do you guys think about this? Because apparently, we could talk for hours on it. <laughs> So let's talk about the NYSE. Steve, you and I got together for a vintage tournament this past weekend, which we don't do very often anymore. And it was a great time. Uh I think before we analyze the results or discuss anything, we really should just give props to Nick Detweiler and all of those who helped and supported running the event because it went it went quite well. The attendance was up significantly year over year do you remember the numbers steve i think it went from like 75 in year 1 to 90 something in year 2 to 150 this year
1: yeah the tenants in the previous years were i think in the 70s and then low 80s
0: in the previous two years so this is a this is almost
1: a doubling of the tenants 40% increase it's huge yeah and this is a 100 100 dollar 125 dollar entry the event so this is no small buy in either for a, <laughs> magic, a magic tournament
0: no it is some serious dedication and and I was talking to Nick specifically about the attendance topic. He doesn't expect that he can get as much of an increase next year as he did this year, but even a little bit will help defray the ever-increasing costs of cards. Yeah. I think everyone... Th- there's a select few people who want the cost of cards to keep going up in Vintage, but most people in the community would like to keep the costs... <laughs> it's
1: already out of control.
0: <laughs> no, from, ...from rocketing up. But at any rate, Steve, you wanted to talk about the metagame breakdown at the start of the event, right? Yeah,
1: just give, us the, give us the metagame breakdown.
0: So, fortunately for everyone involved, Nick was kind enough to produce a, a nice substantive post on the Mana Drain as a tournament organizer report. The metagame breakdown looks like this. I'm reading from his post on the Drain Workshops 22 Martello shops, four Frobots, four Terranova, three Espresso, a five color, and a metal worker. So, overall, it looks like. 35 workshop decks out of 150 that's a pretty significant proportion as a pretty much you, you and I didn't go on the record on our show or anything about the proportions but as we were talking about it beforehand we were expecting in the 20% range
1: well do you remember exactly what I said outside i expected and when we were standing outside i
0: i was telling the number
1: of players that i expected i i think i said 22.5% i, I said somewhere between 22 and 25% and yeah. the exact number is 23.33%. Yeah.
0: Well, your prediction was spot on then. And the the preponderance of Martello too, 22 out of 35 is also something that we would have predicted pretty heavily. No,
1: I would have said 60%. Yeah. Which is exactly what it was. It was 62.85%. Yep.
0: The, so That's that was the what we've seen in the past. The, yeah. the most monolithic archetype in the event was Martello shops.
1: Yeah, people say there's a diversity of workshop decks, and I I don't think that 60% of of the workshop archetype being Martello is a diversity. To be honest, we've had this conversation before. But we've been we've been in workshop environments where you've literally had like you know like 25% workshop archetype A, 30% workshop archetype B, 33% workshop archetype C, and then a smattering of the rest. Yeah. Where you've had a much more even breakdowns. It really hasn't been that way. Uh, the the Ever since you know, the last fall, the Kodota version has has just b- far and away been the most uh, played.
0: Right. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the top eight, too.
1: I, I mean, Martell is really forged master shops. Just yeah, it. So it is. Listeners know what we're talking about.
0: Sorry about that. You're completely right. For Bazaars, there were six Dredge decks. Not very many, but more on that later. Mana Drains was very popular and many archetypes all over the board. We've got eight Fenton Oath decks that is named after Greg Fenton. Do they have Mana Drains? Apparently. I'm not certain. Perhaps not not all of them did, and he's just grouping blue decks as Mana Drains. Oh, you know what? I take that back. I know now that he's just grouping Mana Drains as as Blue Control Decks because, as we'll talk about later, the Rituals section has non-Ritual Decks in it. So anyway, we're talking about Blue Control Decks then, not just Mana Drain Decks. Eight Fenton Oath, four Omni Showin' Oath, and then Singletons of Rector Oath, Burning Oath, Oath Tez, and Brian Kelly Oath. (laughs) (laughs) Brian Kelly, famous for his various archetypes that he comes up with. After that, 7 Grixis Planeswalkers and 2 Grixis Thoughtcast Tez, 5 blue red Bloodmoon Control, 4 Jeskai Bomberman, 2 blue white Bomberman, 1 Esper Bomberman, 1 Blue Angels, 6 Jeskai Landstill, 2 blue white Landstill, 2 blue red Landstill, a Bug Landstill and 1 Depth Still. <laughs> Which I don't know what colors it was. I know what that is. That's
1: a player from California who brought that deck.
0: Then under the heading of Combo, we've got two Blue Belchers, two TPS, a Twin, Ad Nauseum, Angel City Vault, Doomsday, Burning Long, Grixis Thoughtcast Stroke of Genius, which I don't know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not many combo decks, though. That's only four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten combo decks, which is noteworthy. So,
1: yeah, in, in terms of the meta game that you've just described, I mean, the Northeast is is very well known for being far more control heavy than is typical in the in the broader vintage meta game, or would be typical online. Yes. Um, and so. You know, anyone going to that environment. I remember going into the NYSE last year and the Waterbury last year, expecting large numbers of blue, blue-white control decks like Bomberman and Lansdale. And to be, I'll be candid, I thought that those had maybe fallen away a bit. Uh, that, that is to say, I thought that the uh, whatever you want to call it, the full infestation or or uh, you know of of the Magic Online vintage metagame. Would have um, maybe perhaps ebbed that dynamic a bit, but mm-hmm. that was, that was definitely not the case. Uh, the, bl- the blue white decks were in, out in force.
0: And I should have said the total number of decks that Nick has listed here as mana drains or blue control decks was 50, but more on that in a moment. So you said 15. 50. Five zero. 50. Yeah, yeah. that sounds right. Yeah. But under the heading of null rods, again, this is not necessarily featuring null rod. 10 Blue-Red Delver, 8 Jeskai Mentor, and 4 Jeskai Mentor slash Delver, so 22 Mentor slash Delver decks. Then 3 Jeskai Mentor Blade, so what we're talking about here are Mentor decks that have Stoneforge Mystic, which is a take on the old Stoneblade name. Um, a Blue-White Caw Blade, I would really like to know if someone was actually playing with the Caw part of Cawblade in Vintage. Uh, one Jeskai Stoneblade, one Esper Stoneblade. So basically six Stoneforge Mystic decks. Then two Bugfish, a Human Storm, which is hilarious. One yes. Fish, four-color Fish deck with Gurmag Angler, which I played against. One Blue-Red Niv Magus Delver deck featuring Niv Magus Elemental, which I saw in action. Five Merfolk's Black, Green, White, so Junk, Hate Bears. One Survival deck, and one Jund. I don't agree with putting necessarily putting cobblade in with null rods. Yeah. That's a I think that's a categorization error on Nick's part. I think that those 6 cobblade decks or stoneblade decks should be up with the control decks. And also the mentor decks in my experience really span a broad range from aggro control to control. Yeah. yeah. My mentor deck that I played is in this Jeskai mentor list and there's no way I would call it a null rod deck in any in any fashion. It is a control deck. So I think the control deck the control deck number should actually be a little closer to 60 to 65 if you recategorize a few of these. But aggro controller was still well represented. 10 blue-red Delver. Straight up blue-red Delver is usually more on the agro control side. And then all these bugfish, humans, and merfolk decks make up about twenty to twenty-five decks, depending on how you categorize.
1: Yeah, it's really difficult to to come up with a clean and consistent categorization system. All these decks are hybridized in certain kinds of ways.
0: Like this Niv Magus Delver. Like, what do you even consider that? But go ahead. Yeah. So what we're in en- what we end up with is about about twenty a little less than twenty-five percent workshops and about... 33%. Yeah, about 10% combo, is that right? Maybe a little high. 15% combo. Oh no, that's right, it's more like 10% combo. uh, It depends on how you group Oath, I guess. Yeah. Sorry.
1: It's closer to like 5% if you're just looking at combo, period.
0: Yeah, I forgot to mention before I said that, that it's also you can also make a case that some of the Oath decks go in combo. Like the Rector, Omni, Show, and Oath decks. Yeah, Burning Oath. oath. And there's Burning Oath in the the combo, sorry, the Control Section here, so there's some overlap there. So maybe if you move some oath decks in the combo, then it comes to all comes to about 10%. But then the obviously the largest grouping, the largest single grouping, would be con- blue control decks. Yeah, splintering of of categorization notwithstanding, there's still fifty or more of them in this category, twice as many as, or almost twice as many as there are shops. And then the Delver decks were significantly represented, but again, depending on how you splinter them, they were about equivalent to the workshops. Right. If you group the humans and Merfolk in with them in terms of agro control. So, it, um. Not too far removed from what we were expecting. I think if it hadn't been in the Northeast, the blue control would not have been quite as well represented. Hmm. But that's think, the, the the regional tendency that you alluded to. Also, I think there's a big chunk of land still here. And the Northeast has some of the most prominent land still players. And I also think... I think for an event of this size, there's a lot of people who want to brew up the best control deck for an environment just in general, since the metagame was pretty well known. And so I think that Landstill and some of the Blue Red Blood Moon control decks are the decks that over in Europe have been called The Answer. I think those decks might have been a little more overrepresented, too, as people wanted to try and tackle the metagame.
1: Well, I I think, actually, it is worth mentioning the Bomberman deck doesn't really work on Magic Online. So that that probably skews the Magic Online environment in ways that are unfair.
0: Good point. And there were eight Bomberman decks. No, seven Bomberman decks in this event. So anyway, we should talk about the top eight, then. The top eight archetypes consisted of Dredge, Two Shops, one of which was Martello, one of which was Robots, Bug, to Landstill, Bomberman, and then what I referred to as the Answer before, the Blue-Red Blood Moon Control deck. Yeah. Very interesting top eight. So if you were going into this event beforehand, Steve, you would have said what you said. I mean, you're on the record as saying uh, 20-something percent Workshops, Heavy Control Contingent, and then a lot of Mentor and Delver, right? Yeah. Yeah. not a single Delver in the top eight.
1: It's, it is really remarkable. I mean, it seems to me that this environment was really targeting the Delver slash Mentor decks. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to explain it.
0: Well, and targeting Martello, too. Because yes. I yes. mean, in terms yes. of single well, archetypes, it was the yeah. most represented.
1: This is a classic example of a tournament in which you have two clear best decks coming in and both of them being pretty successfully hated out Mm -hmm. martello and and delver slash mentor deck
0: and i think that there are two workshop decks in the top eight but it's very noteworthy that one of them is in the robots category yeah um and robots is a term that i know lots of people have disdain for but in the vintage context at the moment what we're talking about is it's still a lodestone golem deck still has Tanglewire and Thorn and Chalice, but it has far more creatures. Triskelion, Arcbound Ravager, Porcelain Legionnaire, and a, an Equipment Suite. Typically, and this deck has what I'm normally used to seeing, three Sword of Fire and Ice plus a right. Batter Skull.
1: Which is just amazing in, against both the Workshops and the Mentor deck.
0: Right, Sword of Fire and Ice is, is a neat trump card for both of those matchups. And the deck is just more aggressive, so it trades on a whole bunch of different axes, it punishes the Delver decks that aren't very good at removing lots of creatures. It, it it can outrace them, which is one of Delver's trumps in the Workshop matchup. That is the card Delver of Secrets can sometimes steal a game if the Delver player can stop or remove a couple of threats in a row. That's right. That's much harder to do against this archetype with the high creature count and the greater damage output. And the simple presence of Sword of Fire and Ice means if that lands, good luck killing me with a Delver of Secrets. Hmm. And yeah, no, your, And your okay. young pyromancer is not going to be good enough to tie up the ground. I can still get in for 7 to 10 <laughs> with one of my creatures. So at any rate, I think that it's worth noting, as you said, Martello and Delver both very successfully hated out by this, this group of players only one of those two who had big targets on their heads made it into the top 8. Then we've got Dredge of course, which is omnipresent in the format but in very small numbers for this event, only 6, which is a very small number when you think about it. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: Dredge has been one of the least successful archetypes in vintage in the last year. I mean, his there was a period of time, I don't know, you know, half a decade long where Dredge was just this persistent presence. You know, it always put it put like two right. copies in the vintage championship top eight consistently from right you know, two thousand nine to two thousand twelve or so. And then it has just fallen off the map. And it, his his performance in the VSL could not have been worse. I think it was zero <laughs> and ten in season right. in, in matches. Uh, it was even worse than Mentor. Uh, it's, uh, it, it failed the top eight, any of the major tournaments. I believe last year. I don't think it top eighted the Waterbury, the Vintage Championship, or the NY... Maybe it top eighted one of those, but I'm not, I, I don't think it did. I could be wrong, but it has been on a long bad streak, and I think. What we've seen is that it's just, it reached a point in the metagame where people were just skimming too much on dredge hate. Just too much. And that's how that works. That's how that cycle works. Dredge thrives in an environment where people are forgetting about it and skimping. And it's not something that happens all at once. It's a cumulative process where people go from seven dredge cards to anti-dredge cards in their sideboard to six to five to four. And and there's a moment reached where dredge will come in, sneak in, and just win. That moment has, has arrived. Because it wasn't last fall. Where dredge I do not believe dredge made top eight of the Vintage championship it did not
0: no it not last uh, year it didn't
1: not, and i don 't remember if it did the year before, but there was a year the year that Mark Negro won, I think there was two in the top eight and 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 so we are now back where dredge is on the come dredge is is back into a position where you look around the metagame and people are running like four anti dredge cards and this was the this was the moment was ripe and you ca- you cannot blame you can you can easily see how dredge won this
0: yeah So let's talk about how the top eight played out. First up, J.P. Kohler was playing the answer, the blue. He doesn't call it that. That's my term borrowed from Europe. He plays
1: Bomberman, right? right, J.P. Kohler plays Bomberman.
0: Plays, but not at this event. He played the blue-red Bloodmoon control deck with Consecrated Sphinx.
1: Got it. Yeah, he put the answer. Yeah.
0: Yep. And that deck is very well positioned against, as we've said, the people with their the biggest target on them, Delver and Workshops, has a high base has a very strong mana base, a high basic land count against shops. Blood Moon's not great against them, but it it invalidates some of their mana denial strategy in wastelands and such. But generally speaking, having five basic islands in your deck means you have very consistent mana and he had mana drains, so anyway, that's one <laughs> of the ways that deck yeah. abuses shops.
1: Yeah. It and it, it's it's uh, hate for mentor Delver could not be more hilarious. In addition yeah. to two sudden shocks in his Go sideboard, ahead. Chalice of the Void's main deck, he has two Aether Flash in his <laughs> sideboard. For those of you who don't know what Aether Flash does, which should probably be ninety nine point nine percent of you, <laughs> Aether Flash is a red enchantment that costs two red red. Uh, it was originally printed in Weatherlight. Weatherlight. It says whenever a creature comes into play, Aether Flash deals two damage to it. <laughs> so it, it basically destroys every single token generated by Pyromancer or Mentor and it destroys Mentor unless you immediately pump it.
0: That's right. The only creature out of the popular played creatures in those archetypes that can survive is Monastery Mentor. And that's only if you play it and then gush with the trigger on the stack or something similar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is not a which is not a a, a given. Um uh, even then you just manage to get a Grey Ogre into play with prowess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because your your monks can't survive as easily. You you could keep a monk around by paying two spells in response to its enter the enter the battlefield trigger. But anyway, yes, Aether I, Flash is some hilariously awesome hate for Delver and Mentor.
1: And it's castable both because they have a lot of red with Blood Moon, but also because they have ancient
0: tombs. Yes. So so, if any of you don't know what that blue-red Blood Moon control deck is like, it's really designed, as Steve just said, to hate Delver strongly. Main deck, uh, boy. <laughs> it, yeah, he has a one Rolling Earthquake, which is hilarious. Very effective board wipe, and also he has just subtle hate for things like Dredge, and because Blood Moon is a nice trump card to a, a Bazaar of, of Baghdad, but not quite fast enough in general and also it has trinket mages for a control package featuring uh, engineered explosives and the chalice of the void as we said plus sometimes it has other things he doesn't have no he doesn't have main deck cage but i've seen lists that had main deck cage for the trinket mages as well but at any rate jp unfortunately for him lost to justin beckert on bug fish and this bug deck is, it's one that I, personally, and I think a lot of people had counted out, but it seems pretty clear to me that Justin metagamed his deck again, heavily to fight Workshops and Delver, because he's got three Abrupt Decays and three Snapcaster Mages. Those abuse Delver and Mentor pretty powerfully. He has... Notion Thief, which is another nod toward the cantrip-style decks, the gush decks. And he has four Deathrite Shaman and two Trigon Predator, quite good against workshops. And then a full four Wastelands and one Strip Mine, also highly effective against workshops. And the interesting thing to me, as we alluded to earlier, is the two Thought Scour. Mm-hmm. This deck Just with three snap, with yeah. three Snapcaster Mages and... Oh, by the way, he's got Delve Cards, two Tasigers and three Dig Through Times, plus a Treasure Cruise. So fully six Delve cards plus the three Snapcaster mages means Thought is doing double duty in terms of filling the graveyard and finding specific targets.
1: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned everything he has, but I, what I think is most intriguing is what he doesn't have. He doesn't have Bob. He doesn't have Bob. Bob, is, Bob has gone from being the best creature in the format to completely disappearing. Yeah. and you know, it's uh, it's important that people. I think that it's important that folks broaden the lens of the format and appreciate these kinds of broad-scale tectonic shifts that occur in vintage. Mm-hmm. You've got these like five-year rotations of cards there was a period basically from 2009 to 2012 where bob decks were either were in the finals every year of the vintage championship
0: i think it goes back further than that though right i mean paul's win what did paul win with
1: he won with tps we Uh might have we might have had bobs in the sideboard there i
0: was thinking he had bobs too but i might be wrong
1: yeah but but basically for a four-year stretch they, were in the, they either won the finals or were in the finals, right? I mean, because remember, didn't uh, Bob Marr lose some flips to himself to die to Owen? <laughs> to That's
0: right. Well, Owen and Bob had a 75-card mirror. They were both yeah. on Bob decks in the finals. right? And, and the then, of course, t- Mark famously beat Paul. Mark who was and
1: up- Blaine in the finals with Bob with Bob control.
0: Wait, what?
1: No, no, Mar- I'm sorry. Mark Linegra. You meant Mark Hornung, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. You're right. Yeah. They're
0: consecutive Marks. <laughs> Mark-, Mark Hornung famously beat Paul who had previously beaten you on the on the 70 something card mirror. Yes, Bob <laughs> got. Yeah. And then, of course, Mark Linigra on Grixis with Bobs won the next year.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had basically a four-and-a-half, five-year period where Bobs were, like, it was just the best creature in the format. Right. And one of the reasons it was the best creature in the format was because it could generate card advantage without mana against workshops. Um, but we are, we're now at a period, the last two years, where Delver decks just prey on Bob because that incremental life loss makes such a big difference. Uh, well,
0: and also, the period you refer to in four years was also basically the pre-Lightning Bolt era. That's what I'm getting at. Were tran- yeah, we transitioned into Lightning Bolt being the standard removal spell.
1: Right, and the the, the prevalence of, of Planeswalker certainly contributed to that, but yep. Bob, it's it's interesting to think, you know, we've been through these cycles before. I mean, there was a period where, where Goblin Welder was in every single top archetype. It was just the yep. best creature, and Bob is just the most recent example of that, of a creature just dominating and then disappearing, and to see this bug deck reemerge far more... Resilient to, bot, to, to um, Delver decks and Bolts in particular because of the absence of Bob. It's mm-hmm. been here.
0: Excellent point. Excellent point. So I think that's part of the reason why this bug deck was able to succeed as well as it did, and I also think it's part of the reason why Justin was able to defeat JP with the answer because this bug deck, it it just has it has questions and answers that that yes. uh, that blue red uh, blood moon deck can't deal with properly. Uh, the the, dar- the death right shamans while they are hurt by chalices they come down so quickly that they partially invalidate blood moon as a as a tactic broadly speaking yeah. and also he's got just simply the presence of uncounterable abrupt decay means that anything he needs to answer the chalice the blood moon the trinket mage whatever can be readily answered and snapcaster mage just does so much work when you've got abrupt decay
1: yeah I mean. This deck is well positioned against against the workshop decks. Naturally, these decks always have been. Yeah. But the question mark has been: hey, can these decks beat the Delver decks? Right. And it's interesting that he fights Delver on its own terms, in a sense. That is to say, he goes all in on these Delve spells. Right. He's got like like you mentioned, and I think critically facilitated by Thoughts Thoughtscour as you mentioned. But also, they use tech that we recently reviewed, which was Virulent Plague.
0: Yeah, Virulent Plague, which is highly effective against young Pyromancer. Monastery Mentor and against the well, against Oath, and uh, Oath is no noticeably absent from this top eight, but also against Dredge and their zombies. yeah, it's just really that's just yeah, multifaceted in the format these days. So the next matchup is Chris Hansen on Landstill, who was defeated by Sullivan Brophy on dredge. and you gotta feel bad for a landstill player. I mean broadly speaking, that's a pretty nightmare matchup. When you're playing landstill, you're just hoping that people don't show up with Dredge. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can fight it a lot in your sideboard uh, but you can only go so far. You are so so hopelessly strategically disadvantaged in that matchup that it's really really rough. Chris Hansen's sideboard included two Kataki, three Supreme Verdict, which is far and away in uh, in there for Dredge and Mentor and not Dredge. I'm uh, sorry. Delver and Mentor but not Dredge. He had three Containment Priests, three Ravenous Traps, so there's six cards: two Stony Silence, Abolish, and Energy Flux. Yeah, so he would bring in Supreme Verdict probably. But generally speaking, he's got three anti anti-dredge, I'm sorry, six anti-dredge cards.
1: I, I think that's, yeah, exactly. He's got the three containment priests and three ravenous traps. You've got to wonder, though, you've got to wonder that if he had had um, rest in peace instead of those ravenous traps, if he had been able to win this match.
0: We should note that there's one key advantage land still has against Dredge, and it's the five wasteland or strip effects. So that's important. But yes, I agree completely. I don't know why he opted for Ravenous Trap.
1: Rest, rest in peace is just the best. It's and just it's the best anti dredged card there is. Just about. We've we've gone back right. and forth between Leyline of the Void and that. It's puzzling to me that he that he went that route.
0: Ravenous Trap is a fine card, but I find that it's only really appropriate for a deck that's going to finish the game quickly. If your combo or aggro control, that's exactly. more on the aggressive side, Ravenous Trap can be can be one or th- one to three turns worth of tempo, enough for you to win the game. But in a deck like Landstill, I would I would not go with Ravenous Trap. I don't yeah. know what. Maybe yeah. he was counting on the combination of Ravenous Trap plus Wasteland Land to just shut them out.
1: Well, I can understand if he had like two or three Snapcaster Mage, but he only has one. Yeah. So it's not like he's going to be able to replay that with any reliability.
0: Well, hold on a sec. He'll also have to cast it. Oh, you can play the trap cost with Snapcaster Mage. No, yeah. you can't. No, you can't. You can't play the trap cost with Snapcaster Mage. It gets flashback equal to its mana cost. Oh, okay. That's so right. that trick doesn't work. It's um, it's a uh, surgical extraction that works quite well with Snapcaster yeah, there you Mage go. There you go. or extrapate.
1: Yeah, it's it's really puzzling. I mean, you got. I mean, again, if you're in white, the best card. Next to containment priest, the best—I mean, really—the best anti-dredge card is rest in peace.
0: Yeah. Um, He has main deck balance and echoing truth.
1: And Decree of justice.
0: Yeah, but what I'm pointing out that he's got a couple of main deck cards that help that matchup a lot that that not every landstill deck does.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. So he has
0: he has some game, but I think he's still severely disadvantaged.
1: It's a big dog. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So at any rate, dredge wins there. Next matchup was uh, Benjamin Marlo donet who played the Robots deck we mentioned, and he defeated John Fisher. What was John playing? Sorry.
1: That was a landstill deck.
0: Was he the last? Was he eighth place? Yeah. Yes. So he defeated John Fisher playing Blue Red Landstill, <laughs> featuring Karanos God of Storms.
1: Th- this landstill Fuck. deck is got to be one of the most hateful anti anti Delver decks I've ever seen. Yeah, he has he has volcanic fallouts in his sideboard, propaganda, sudden shock, and he's got a main deck slice and dice. Mm-hmm.
0: It's pretty hateful toward Delver. Not to mention Karanos, if it ever gets going, is really hard for uh, Delver deck to out attrition. <laughs> So, unfortunately, though, Blue-Red Landstill did not match up very well against Robots, and that's understandable. As we've said before, one of the reasons why the Robots deck is good against Delver is because of its threat density and the, the trickiness of the threats, especially vis-a-vis sort of Fire and Ice. That is also an advantage against Landstill. You've got far more cheap creatures... Benjamin has multiple two-mana creatures that standard Martello decks don't have. Those are the the Legionnaires and the Ravagers, which is just so hard for a deck that's trying to control the board like Landstill is to deal with. So it's no surprise that Robots was advantaged there. And the last of the quarterfinal matchups in the top eight was Tom Nelson on Martello. He's the lone Martello representative. Defeating Brian Ritter on Bomberman. Now this is one that I believe could go either way. Bomberman players have made made their living beating Martello Shops, so I would not have been surprised if this matchup went the other way. Looking at Brian's deck, which is an Esper Bomberman list, he has some notable inclusions, which is three Tasiger, the Golden Fang. Frequently, Bomberman decks these days have been playing only one or two, opting to try and dig for Tasiger via a Spellbomb or something, and then end the game that way. But seemed that Brian preferred having far more access to Tassiger in the early game. And being that he's Esper, his Spellbomb of choice in this case is Niles Spellbomb, which gives a bit of an advantage against both Delver decks and all of their Delve spells. You get extra upside there, but also against Dredge, of course. And out of the sideboard, Bomberman has t- just tons of options. For how it can fight shops. The fact that it doesn't have red traditionally means that it generally has to go to some of the more creative options. In this case, Brian has two Kataki, two dismember, extra copies of Engineered Explosives, Pithing Needle, Graftiger's Cage, Tormod's Crypt, one Illness in the Ranks, one Energy Flux, and another Swords to Plowshares. So, against shops, you see bringing in two Kataki and an Energy Flux, an extra Plow, possibly the Explosives, depending on what his strategy is like and some or all of the dismembers i'm guessing again depending on what his strategy is like i find it interesting that he opted to mix up kataki and energy flux i know that legendary status on kataki means that drawing two of them is sometimes a bummer but man they're so powerful when you get them into play yeah I just I just have lost so many games with Energy Flux in my hand that I would have probably opted for the third Kataki, but regardless, Esper Bomberman and Martello is the sort of matchup that can go either way, and we did not watch this one play out. But in this case, Tom Nelson on Martello won. Tom's Martello list is noteworthy in that it has Cavern of Souls. This is something that is occasionally found in decks such as this, help fight control, and it gives you upside of course against the mana drains of the world but it also means that your lodestone golems after turn 1 have a much higher chance of surviving well, i have which a helps question the deck's consistency
1: obviously there's interesting stuff in his sideboard like homeward path mm-hmm. uh dismember is typically more more likely to be found in the um, other shop variants but is is the triple crucible is that typical of martello in the no. um, I've,
0: Well, I've, three is a little bit high, but two crucible in the sideboard is relatively common. I've seen on the vintage dailies for the mirror.
1: It's easy to imagine how that could have made a difference against a Bomberman deck.
0: That's um, a good point. You know, the Wasteland's just tearing that deck apart. Yeah. For those of you who might not know, Homeward Path is anti-deck technology that is seeping into workshop sideboards. It hasn't become a staple yet, mostly because those sideboards are cramped for space in general. But Homeward Path allows you to take back those creatures that Dak may have stolen. Those permanents, I should say. I am a bit surprised to see fully four dismembers in Tom Nelson's sideboard. Most of the Martello lists I've seen over the course of the last year max out at two or three. It must be that he, he was either... Very happy with how they played out against the Delver and Mentor decks, or perhaps he just really wants to bring all the maximum number in in the Mirror, which I could understand. Right. The fact that he has three Crucibles in the sideboard, and four Dismembers, and a Ghost Quarter, that strikes me as, as girding up for the Mirror, actually.
1: Yeah, me too, but I, I'm just saying I think it has some benefit.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. Agreed. Well, so that put our top four at Bug, Dredge, Robots, and Martello, which is an interesting top four taken as a thought experiment. The top four then lined up thusly. Steve Brophy on Dredge versus Justin Beckert on Bug, and Steve Brophy won. And Benjamin Marlo Donet on Robots versus Tom Nelson on Martello, and Benjamin won which set up the finals then of Robots versus Dredge.
1: Which you can watch online. There is the, the stream of it. But, but Benjamin's sideboard only basically has... He's got four cage, two Witchbane Orb, which doesn't really stop much of anything
0: except for... The therapies. I mean, it stops him from taking cards out of his own hand, or your hand with therapies, but not casting them in the first place.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Right. I have not played a lot of that matchup post-sideboard in the last two years. My instincts tell me that you could go with or without the Witchbane orbs in that matchup. I don't know how important it is to whether you're the one who's getting therapied or not. I suppose, on I mean, the thing is, they can't help you on the draw prevent your dredge playing opponent from therapying you for your cage if they want to on turn one.
1: No, no, this is this is a lopsided matchup, especially the way that the, that Sullivan has designed his deck. I mean, Sullivan's main deck has, I'm sorry, Sullivan's sideboard has four Ingotchures and four Nature's Claims, and he made full advantage of that. And also, most importantly, Sullivan's deck has a lot more land than is typical in the normal Dredge decks. He's yes. got 17 lands in his deck. It's more like a, a, a gush. It's, it, that's, as, that's as many lands as you see in the vintage deck. And yeah. That's basically as many as workshops run a lot of the time. Uh, he's got a lot of lands, which means he's got a lot of maneuvering room. And you only need a little bit of maneuvering. As a dredge pilot, so
0: yeah. And if you watch the finals, one of those lands in particular played a powerful role, and that was Petrified Field. In addition to simply making spells castable, Petrified Field means you have access to more Bazaars than your opponent has Wastelands. Right. And that is one of many keys to overcoming the Workshop matchup. And it's one case I think where the Robots deck in general is disadvantaged in the Workshop landscape right now, and that is against dredge because with fewer lock components, fewer disruptive components such as spheres you aren't slowing them down as much and the fact that you have a fast clock against most every other deck in the format is not good enough against dredge something like the attrition-y kinds of cards like batter skull and sword of fire and ice do not match up well against a dozen or more zombies so the kind of incremental advantage that you get against almost everyone else in the metagame just doesn't help against dredge. This is one area where a more dedicated mana denial strategy of workshops it probably is slightly advantaged.
1: So, so there you have it. You've got you know a metagame that was really focused on Martello and, and Delver-type decks, and Delver decks just falling flat on their face. There were a, a, a two mentors in the top eight in the Landstill deck, <laughs> and there were, uh, let's see, in the top 16, there happened to be one, uh, actually a number of mentors. And one was in a Bomberman deck, another was in a, a typical Pyromancer mentor deck. Very similar to what I played a couple months ago in the Eudaimonia Udem- with a mixture of Pyromancers mm-hmm. and in the BSL, of course. Then there was a, t- a typical Blue-Red Delver deck. Um, so they were there, but they weren't really close to the top top eight. They were firmly in the top sixteen. Uh, sorry, there's one more. So there are four four mentor Delver decks in the top sixteen. There was I would just like to mention one more. Uh, dredge deck in the top 16. So, and, and this guy had four rending volley in his sideboard, which yep. is an uncounterable way to destroy Mentor.
0: And I would just reiterate that this top 8 appears to be filled with people who very skillfully navigated the metagame of this event. Yes. I mean, every one of these decks is yes. very well positioned against the expected players and I think rewarded for their their positioning with their top 8 appearance. It just so happens that Dredge was possibly the best position amongst all of these. I think some I think many players in the room that day hedged as you said on their Dredge sideboard hates in order to be sure they could beat the Delvers and Martellos of the World. Yeah. And I think two two out of 6 Dredge in the top 16, one of which being in first place kind of demonstrates that. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, a very awesome event. I think it sets a very interesting stage for Eternal Weekend. We're not gonna cover that right now, but the fact that the the fact that the top two decks were really successfully hated out means that means a number of things. It means that people will reconsider themselves, I think, going into Eternal Weekend. It also means it's really hard to adapt one of those archetypes, either Delver slash Mentor or a Martello. It's hard to adapt those archetypes to fight all these contenders. You can't just remake Martello such that it beats Dredge, Robots, Landstill, Bug, and Blue Red <laughs> uh, Blood no, Moon Control. No, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's going to be a lot of people who are really reconsidering things, and you might see a far more diverse metagame at Eternal Weekend because of it. But we'll be watching the, we'll be reading the signs and watching the dailies and looking at some other factors, and cover that in our next episode. Thank you for listening to episode 44 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
2: We get the for games. game! <laughs>